Amen. So, uh, welcome to Theological Equipping. We are doing systematic theology, what we've been doing for the past few semesters. Basically, what that is, is takes a, an individual topic and then looks at what the entirety of Scripture says on that particular topic. So, uh, uh, it's trying to give kind of a comprehensive overview of uh, these particular uh, doctrines of Scripture. And so, we spent an entire semester looking at bibliology, which is what? The doctrine of Scripture, and then we did theology proper, which is the uh, the study of God Himself, the uh, the nature of God, and uh, went into Trinitarianism and Christology and all of those sorts of things. Then we did anthropology, which is what study of man, and then hamartiology, which is what study of sin, and uh, and then we've started to get into soteriology, which is what doctrine of salvation. And so last semester we talked about uh, salvation accomplished, what Christ has actually accomplished. And then this semester we're moving into soteriology, that is uh, salvation being applied. And so last semester was accomplishment of salvation. This semester the uh, application of, uh, of salvation. And, uh, and so we have talked about things like regeneration, which is God giving us new spiritual life. We've been reborn or born again, uh, if you're familiar with that parlance. Uh, we've talked about justification, which is when God gives us this right legal standing uh, before Him. And then today what we're going to talk about is adoption, which is the, the doctrine that says that God makes us members of His family. So what we're going to talk about today really focuses much more on sort of the personal relationship, the more intimate aspects of salvation, whereas uh, justification is much more of a legal forensic sort of thing. Uh, adoption is much more of a familial uh, thing. And so uh, I want to mention this quote from J.I. Packer. I think you have it in your, uh, in your notes, but I think it's a really good uh, quote to help see how adoption fits with and is distinct from some of these other doctrines that we've been talking about. And so he says this, some textbooks on Christian doctrine treat adoption as a mere subsection of justification, but this is inadequate. The two ideas are distinct, and adoption is the more exalted. Justification is a forensic idea conceived in terms of law and viewing God as judge. In justification, God declares of penitent believers that they are not and never will be liable to the death that their sins deserve because Christ Jesus, their substitute and sacrifice, tasted death in their place on the cross. This free gift of acquittal and peace won for us at the cost of Calvary is wonderful enough in all conscience. But justification does not of itself imply any intimate or deep relationship with God the judge. In idea, or theoretically at any rate, you could have the reality of justification without any close fellowship with God resulting. But contrast this now with adoption. Adoption is a family idea conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us unto his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. So think about this through the, uh, the parable of the prodigal son, if you're familiar uh, with the story. And so the, uh, the, uh, the son gets his early inheritance. He goes away, squanders everything he has on, uh, uh, on just sort of this lavish lifestyle of sin. He is uh, brought to the point of being completely impoverished. He's eating uh, with the pigs. And uh, in this moment, he realizes, I want to go back to my father, but I'm not worthy to be called a son. I will 
just simply uh, uh, content myself to be a servant. Even being a servant is better than the state that I'm in. And so he goes back with the expectation and hope that his father would simply receive him back as a servant, and yet the father receives him back as a son. And, uh, and so you have there the image uh, of adoption, the image there of this relationship. And so God could have simply forgiven us. He could have simply justified us. He could have simply said, your sins are forgiven. You will be uh, my servants. After all, angels are just servants. And yet he did not just do that. He did not merely just make us servants. He made us sons and, uh, and daughters. And, uh, and so I want to mention where this falls in light of, uh, if you remember this, this is the Ordo Salutis. It's called the Order of Salvation. And uh, so we've talked about before how this is not necessarily a chronological order. It's more of a logical order. And, uh, and so the order uh, of uh, events in our salvation. And so it begins in eternity past where we are foreknown or loved by God. And uh, as a result of that, we are predestined by God. Again, this happens in eternity past. Then at certain, uh, a certain point in your life, you are called through the gospel. Uh, as a result of that call, immediately you are regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You're born again. Our response, the one that is uh, in blue, is that we believe. And, uh, and then as a result of that, we are justified and forgiven. We're united with Christ. We'll talk about that next week. And then we are adopted. So this is where adoption fits in the order of salutis. By the way, all of these things are happening pretty much simultaneously. So your call, your regeneration, your belief, your justification, all of those things are happening, uh, happening simultaneously in the same instant, the same way that you strike a match and instantly there is both light and heat. Uh, whenever God calls you, He regenerates you, you believe, you are justified, forgiven, all of those uh, sorts of things. So that's where this falls uh, in relation to the other doctrines that we've been uh, considering. So let's begin with a couple of uh, definitions. First, the word adoption is huiothesia, uh, or thesia, and uh, it means to place, this is this word, to place a son is the, uh, the literal meaning of it. And so these are a few of the, uh, the better uh, definitions that I was able to find. Uh, Wayne Grudem says, adoption is an act of God whereby he makes us members of his family. So that's probably the shortest, most succinct, simple definition that you can get. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson quoted this. I'm not sure if this is by him or uh, I think in your notes it has a question mark because I'm not sure if it's by him or if he was quoting somebody else. But he says, adoption is the authoritative translation of a believer by Jesus Christ from the family of the world and Satan into the family of God with his investiture in all the privileges and advantages of that family. And then from the 1689 London Baptist Confession, uh, it says this, for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, God has been pleased to make all justified persons sharer, uh, sharers in the grace of adoption by means of which they are numbered with and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. Furthermore, God's name is put upon them. They receive the spirit of adoption and they are enabled to come boldly to the throne of grace and to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by God as by a father. He never casts them off. But as they remain sealed to the day of redemption, they inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. Basically, what we're going to talk about today is just kind of fleshing out this 1689 uh, London Confession. So those are a few different uh, definitions. So in order to really understand this doctrine of, uh, of adoption, it's really helpful for us uh, to kind of orient ourselves by understanding the concept of the fatherhood of God. 
According to the, uh, the dictionary of, uh, of Paul and his letters, uh, they say that there is no concept of God which dominates the theology of Paul more than this, that is the, the uh, analysis of the fatherhood of God. J.I. Packer says something really similar in his uh, classic work, Knowing God. If you've never read that book, you should uh, uh, highly recommend it. Uh, Knowing God by J.I. Packer. He has an entire chapter in there about the fatherhood of God. And he says this, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase. If you speak of it uh, as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator, in the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion, if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinct. Uh, distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish, is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. Packer will go on and, and, uh, and say uh, that he would sum up the entire New Testament uh, with this sort of idea, that the entire New Testament can be summed up as this, that it's adoption through propitiation. Adoption through propitiation. That God adopts His, uh, his children through the means of satisfying His, uh, his divine Wrath. Now, that might bring up the question, well, but doesn't the Bible teach that we're all God's children? Uh, that was uh, at least what was said by a guy named Adolf von Harnack, who was a German theologian who lived from 1851 to 1930. By the way, that's my second least favorite uh, Adolf of all time. There's a, uh, a close third is a guy whose name was Adolf Evilchild actually was his name, and I was really tempted to make him my second least favorite, and then I found out that evil child is a better, better translated as bad boy. I feel like anybody who calls themselves the bad boy, like uh, Zach sometimes will call himself the bad boy of theology, and uh, uh, Carl calls himself the bad boy of the French horn. There's no bad boy of the French horn. Uh, those things are mutually exclusive. And so, anyway, uh, Adolf evil child didn't make it, so Adolf von Harnack, my uh, second least favorite Adolf of all time. Uh, here are some things you need to know about him. Uh, he was a theologian uh, in the uh, late 19th century. He rejected the Gospel of John. He rejected the Apostles' Creed. He denied the existence of miracles, and he founded the social gospel. So if you're sitting in the audience, thumbs up or thumbs down? Thumbs down, right? And, uh, and so we don't like Adolf von Harnack. Uh, his book, uh, What is Christianity, though, was one of the kind of uh, bastions of theological liberalism in the, uh, the 19th century. And, uh, and he said in that book, What is Christianity? He said that the essence of all religion is the universal fatherhood of God and the universal brotherhood of man, which sounds really sweet, right? It sounds like you should, you know, drive your little car with your coexist bumper sticker and go have a campfire and sing We Are the World or whatever. And, uh, and so that is the idea. And there's hints of truth that we see in Scripture of that. There's a sense in which there is this universal fatherhood of God. And so in Luke's genealogy, uh, whenever Luke is giving a genealogy of Jesus, uh, he is going back and in verse uh, 38 of Luke chapter 3, he says, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. And so he sees Adam, in a sense, as being a son of God. And since we're all descended from Adam, there's a sense in which God is everyone's father. 
or Acts 17.28, Paul is, uh, is preaching at the Areopagus, uh, Mars Hill, and, uh, and he says, For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own prophet poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. There's a sense in which all humanity is God's offspring. Ephesians 3, 14 through 15, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. So again, there is this sense in which God is a Father to all humans. There's a sense in which God is a Father to all creation. But there is this uniqueness to the way that God is Father to Christians. Uh, there is a, uh, a uniqueness. And so what, what we don't want to do is dilute the distinctiveness of the relationship that God has with, uh, with His children. And so J.I. Packer, uh, whenever he is answering the question, what is a Christian? Uh, he answers it much differently than uh, Adolf von Harnack would answer the question, what is Christianity? Whenever uh, Packer is answering the question, what is a Christian? He says, that the question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. A Christian is one who has God for his Father. In other words, that is not something that is true of all uh, mankind. And so there's a sense in which there is this general fatherhood of God. By virtue of creation, God is Father to all humanity, but there is a very distinctive element in which God is the unique Father of His children. In fact, Scripture will say that we don't have God as our Father apart from Christ. Uh, We have another Father. And so look at what Ephesians 2 says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the, someone read that phrase for me, sons of disobedience. We are sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, what's that next phrase? Children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So we're sons of disobedience. We're children of wrath. We are not children of God apart from uh, Christ. Or Jesus is talking uh, to uh, some Jewish leaders in John 8, 41 through 44. And he says, you are doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual morality. Probably a dig at him, probably because there was uh, rampant talk that uh, Mary had had Jesus out of wedlock because of the whole um, uh, uh, virginity thing. And so it says, we have one Father, even God. Jesus said to him, if God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but He sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your Father, the devil, and your will is to do your Father's desires." So again, there is a little hint of truth in which there is this universal fatherhood of God, but the overwhelming biblical evidence is that we do not have God as our Father apart from Christ. Instead, we are fathers of Satan. I'm sorry, we are sons of Satan. We are sons of sin. We are sons of rebellion and disobedience and wrath and all of these sorts of things until we are adopted. And so Charles Spurgeon, prophetically perhaps, because this is uh, maybe 20 years or so before Um, uh, Von Harnack uh, rose to the scene, Uh, but he said this, believe, so this is Charles Spurgeon, believe the doctrine of the fatherhood of God to his people. Abhor the doctrine of the universal fatherhood of God, for it is a lie and deep deception. 
It stabs at the heart first of the doctrine of adoption, which is taught in Scripture. For how can God adopt men if they are His children already? In the second place, it stabs at the heart of the doctrine of regeneration, which is certainly taught in the Word of God. Now, it is by regeneration and faith that we become the children of God, but how can that be if we are the children of God already? But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on His name, which were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It's from John 1. How can God give to men the power to become His sons if they have it already? Believe not that lie of the devil, but believe this truth of God, that Christ and all who are by living faith in Christ may rejoice in the fatherhood of God. So I want to begin with, uh, with that. I want to read a few passages about adoption. I'm just going to read through these. I'm not going to make comments uh, about them, but let me encourage you. If you struggle with anxiety, if you struggle with depression, if you struggle with fear, if you struggle with lust, if you struggle with greed or envy or jealousy, uh, any, does that ring a bell for anybody? All right, so that's pretty much everybody is struggling with one of those things. Let me encourage you to memorize these texts, to meditate on uh, these texts, to pray these texts back to God, to print these texts off. You have them already printed off there, to cut them out, to put them up on your, uh, your uh, refrigerator or something like that. There's nothing that's going to combat sin in your life, whatever that sin is. There is no sin that is immune to this. There's nothing that's going to combat sin in your life like reflecting upon the fact that you are loved by God. And there's no doctrine that shows us the love of God more than, uh, than adoption. So I want to read these, again, not making comment on them. Romans 8, 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Romans 8, 23 through 25. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. If we were to continue on uh, past that, we would go into, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, and God works all things together for good. Galatians 4, 1 through 7, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set forth by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Ephesians 1, 3-6. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. 
in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. John 1, 12 through 13, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. 1 John 3, 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is, and everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. And we could go on and on with a number of other passages. We'll look at some of them as we uh, talk about some facts about adoption and then some implications uh, of this that uh, we should take to heart. So just some facts about adoption that, uh, that you should uh, know. And uh, I chose, I think, five of them, but uh, could have put uh, a handful of others. The first one that you should know is that adoption is Trinitarian. Adoption is Trinitarian. In fact, everything that God does is Trinitarian because God is triune. So God never does anything that's not Trinitarian because God himself is uh, triune. And so uh, the Father in love predestines us for adoption, and he sends his Son for us. The Son is our Redeemer who loved us and uh, redeemed us, who comes for us. The Spirit is the Spirit of adoption. In fact, he's called the Spirit of adoption who enables us to cry out to God as Father. So you see here that the Father plans our uh, redemption, the Son accomplishes our redemption, the Spirit applies our redemption. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, the Spirit applies. And so adoption is, uh, is Trinitarian. We shouldn't think of it merely, although in adoption we do see the fatherhood of God, we shouldn't think of it merely as being something that God the Father does as if the Son and the Spirit are somehow uninvolved that day. They take a day off or something like that. No, this is something that all three persons of the Trinity uh, are uh, active in, uh, in doing. The second thing, that adoption is a distinctly New Testament doctrine, although there are hints in the Old Testament. And so this is one of the reasons that, uh, uh, as we read uh, the quote from J.I. Packer, and he talks about how this is a distinctively New Testament sort of thing. If you want to know how much someone makes of New Testament Christianity, he talks about, as opposed, uh, as opposed to the Old Testament. And so it's a distinctly New Testament doctrine, although there are hints in the, in the Old Testament. You see these little shadows throughout the Old Testament of this idea uh, in which God is going to adopt But in general, it's not talking about God adopting individuals. It's talking about God adopting uh, a corporate body. So God will often speak of adopting Israel as his people. And then that language will then kind of be a a type, uh, an analogy of the way that God is, is going to relate to his son. And so Israel as a corporate people is going to be called his son, and then we know that uh, Jesus is the true son of God, and then we're incorporated into him. And so you see a, a few hints of this, uh, where uh, we'll, uh, the, the prophets will say, out of Egypt I called my son. The reference there is to Israel, that will then be later uh, used of Jesus as the fulfillment of that, or Jeremiah 3.19 I said, how I would set you among my sons and give you a pleasant land, a heritage, most beautiful of all nations, and I thought you would call me my father and would not turn from following me. 
So you see a number of places throughout Scripture, I won't name them all, but a number of places uh, in Scripture, God will uh, use the language of adoption of Israel as a corporate body, but you don't really get that individualistic sense until you get to the, uh, the New Testament. One of the reasons, though, why this is not maybe more of an Old Testament uh, idea is that adoption is kind of rare in, uh, in the Old Testament because the Mosaic Law would make these provisions that uh, would make adoption less necessary. You had things like leveret marriage and the year of Jubilee and all of these kinds of things that would protect orphans uh, whether they were adopted or not. So adoption really wasn't a major image within the context of the Old Testament. It's much more of a, a New Testament uh, idea, so we wouldn't expect it to have much there. Next thing you should know, adoption demonstrates election, the doctrine of election. Adoption demonstrates election. So the very image is going to imply it, right? So we can think about uh, those who would physically adopt, uh, and, uh, and you think of them as they are the ones who go and they choose the child, right? Uh, if you go and you want to adopt a kid, it's not like all of the kids get to sit around and they get to choose. Of all the parents in the world, I chose this particular parent. No, it's the parents who say, of all the kids in the world, I choose you. And, uh, and so that image just uh, implicitly is going to, uh, to show it, but we don't have to rely on implication. The Bible is going to explicitly make this connection between adoption and election. In Ephesians 1, 3 through 6, we read it before, I'll read it again. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Now listen to how this uh, language of election and predestination and adoption are going to go together. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. So adoption is going to demonstrate this reality that God is the one who elects. God is the one who chooses His children. Now, if you think about the way that we adopt, we might adopt, we might be tempted to go and adopt by looking at, I only want the best, I only want the brightest. That tends to be not the way that uh, Christians go and adopt. Uh, in general, they look for the one who is in the most need, and that is the way that God actually does things. He chooses the foolish things of the world to shame uh, the wise. God's not looking for the best and, uh, and the brightest, and so adoption uh, demonstrates this reality of the, uh, the glorious doctrine of election. It also is going to prove perseverance. So think of, name some uh, famous like literary or cinematic orphans. Who is that? Annie, yeah, the little orphan Annie, right? Who else? That's a good one, Bruce Wayne. Who else? Who else? But Oliver Twist, Luke Skywalker, right? He's one. Uh, Harry Potter, Tarzan. There's, you could go on and on. What do all of these stories have in common? They all have this sort of common theme in which at some point this, this orphan is going to overcome all of these circumstances, and they're ultimately going to triumph, right? 
if you think about uh, stories that are comedies versus stories that are tragedies, stories that have happy endings versus stories that have sad endings, most orphan stories that we grow up loving, whether they're movies or books or whatever it might be, tend to have much more of that comedic sort of element. They end on this high note where the, uh, the orphan has overcome all of its uh, circumstances and all of this tragedy in order to experience this sort of happy ending. That's what we see in, uh, in the doctrine of uh, adoption uh, as well. That adoption entails this idea of perseverance, of endurance, of ultimate triumph over the forces uh, of evil and all those sorts of things. So Romans 8.23, not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There is going to be this time where there will be this ultimate triumph over sin and sickness and death in the redemption of our bodies, our resurrection. Or 1 John 3, 1 through 2, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. There is coming this day when we will be like Him because we will see Him uh, as uh, as He is. In other words, there are no returns when it comes to adoption. There's no one that God adopts and He takes them in and then He decides, you know what? This child is too broken. This child is too diseased. This child is too disordered for me. I'm going to return him to uh, the orphanage. Again, this is part of the, the imagery of election. If you wonder why, uh, here at Parkway, we make so much of the doctrine of election, the doctrine of predestination, these sorts of things. It's because the implications of the, uh, the, uh, the theology are going to have profound implications for our hope and our understanding of, uh, of grace and glory and all of those sorts of things. And so uh, the Bible would say those whom He foreknows, those whom He loves, He predestines, He calls, He regenerates. He gives them faith, leading to all of these uh, sorts of things. And so none fall through the cracks. This is a distinctively Calvinistic way of thinking about uh, of the text. The Arminian kind of thinks uh, of it as God kind of tries it out. God adopts you into uh, His family, and as long as you stay on uh, sort of the, the straight and narrow, He keeps you in. But the moment you begin to act up, man, you might get sent back. The Calvinistic system is going to say, no, it begins way up here, something that you can't touch, something that you had no part in. Look how far it is in God's redemptive plan until you actually exercise anything, even that uh, being of grace. And so adoption is going to prove or demonstrate or imply the doctrine of, uh, of perseverance of the saints. And then lastly, Adoption is already and not yet. We've talked about this language of the kingdom before. Uh, we've used the imagery of, uh, of D-Day versus V-Day. And, uh, and so the moment that uh, there is this uh, Normandy invasion and the allies win a great victory there, there is, the war is certain. And yet the war is not over until, uh, until V-Day. And, uh, and so that's what we see here uh, as well, that there's a sense in which you've already been adopted, and there's a sense in which you have not yet been adopted, that your adoption is coming. We see both of those, interesting within, uh, interestingly enough, within the same text, Romans 8, 14 through 15. 
For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of a slavery to fall back into fear, but you receive the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Is that all ready or is that all? Not yet. I heard mumbled. I heard mumbled that was so mumbled that it could have been already or not yet, which is very clever. That's the already, all right? You have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And then listen to the not yet in Romans 8.23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. There's a sense in which we are longing. There's a sense in which we have been adopted already. There's a sense in which we are waiting for our adoption. The fullness of our adoption is yet uh, to come. And when will that take place according to Romans 8.23? I love the unconfident mumbling. The redemption of our bodies. When's that? The resurrection, right? Say it proudly, even if you're wrong. All right, the resurrection, all right? So there is a sense in which we have been adopted. The moment, the moment that, uh, that you are regenerated and you exercise saving faith, uh, you are adopted. That happened. That is certain, absolutely certain. Uh, remember what we talked about with perseverance. You're not going to lose your adoption. But there is a sense in which uh, there is still an element, an aspect of your adoption that is yet to come, and that is with the, uh, the resurrection. So those are a few different facts that I found interestingly, uh, or, or I found interestingly, I found interesting about adoption. Let's talk about some implications. These are sort of pastoral implications of adoption, things that uh, you should think about, things that you should pray about, similar to the way that I said with all of those passages of Scripture, if you struggle with lust and pride, or anger, or envy, or sloth, or jealousy, or envy, or on and on we could go. If you struggle with any sin whatsoever, if you will reflect upon the fatherhood of God, that is a crucial element in your sanctification. Uh, Likewise, if you will reflect upon these truths which kind of flow, they overflow out of the fount of uh, of adoption, the first one being that uh, God loves us. I think it's really ironic that kind of new age spiritualism today and uh, pagan theories of who God is would hold to the idea of God as being loving when by and large just about every religion other than Christianity and coming out of the roots of Judaism historically perceived of God not as being loving, but God as being distant, as being cold, as being angry, not, uh, not loving. Christianity is actually really unique in, uh, in this sense. We talked about it a bit in, uh, in Romans. Part of what makes reading the Bible today challenging is that we're reading it with biases. We're reading it with presuppositions. We're reading it with these cultural lenses that didn't necessarily exist for, uh, for the first century Jew or the first century uh, Christian that's reading, uh, reading the text. And so we ask, we come to the Bible and we ask this question, how can a loving God send people to hell? That is not anywhere in Paul's frame of reference. That is not anywhere in a first century Jewish frame of reference. Instead, they are wrestling with this question, not the question, how can a loving God send people to hell? They're wrestling with this question, how can a God who is holy, how can a God who is just, how can a God who hates idolatry and idols, how can he save idolaters? How can he exercise mercy? How can he justify the unjust? But in the doctrine of adoption, we see the idea that God loves us. Well, doesn't God love everyone? 
Well, we just spent some time in Romans chapter 9 saying, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. There is at least a sense in which God doesn't love everyone equally. Think about the way that you, if you have children, think about the way that you do that. You might love your nieces and nephews. You love them differently than you love your own children. You might love the other children of this church. It might bring a lot of joy to you to see uh, the Larkin Ashleys and the Judah Lees and the Haddon Hollises and the Taylor Browers running around uh, and, uh, and giggling and screaming and all that kind of stuff. But there's a difference in your own heart towards your own uh, children. And, uh, and so we shouldn't take the love of God for granted. It's this powerful picture of the kind of love that God has for His children, not the kind of love that God has for the entire world. And we need to wrestle with that. We need to deal with that, that God has a distinct love. Is there a sense in which God loves everybody? Yes. But doesn't love everybody the exact same, and we don't want him to. Because whatever kind of love he has for Judas, it's a type of love that would allow Judas to go away, to be a son of perdition. Do you want that kind of love? No. You want the kind of love that says, I love you and I will sustain you and you will persevere and you will endure because I will make it so. So again, 1 John 3, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. The second thing, in addition to the fact that God loves us, uh, adoption implies that God provides for us. Matthew 6, 32, For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Uh, after that, in the context, Matthew seven eleven, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask Him? So there's this general principle that we see that good fathers delight to give good gifts to their children. Not just begrudgingly, but they delight to do it. They love to do it. And that's God. That's what God does when He provides for His children. He always and only does and gives what is best. There is this debate ongoing in, uh, in theology as to whether when Paul uses the image of adoption, again, uh, we talked about how adoption really isn't as much a Jewish concept. They didn't have uh, much of a use of that uh, metaphor because there wasn't as much adoption in ancient Israel. And so when Paul is getting this concept, uosthesia, uh, uh, whenever he's getting this concept, is it, much, is it more uh, influenced by Greek or is it influenced by uh, Roman and, uh, and so uh, there's debate over that. But one of the primary reasons, whether it's uh, Greek or Roman adoption, in all sort of Greco-Roman culture, one of the primary reasons for adoption is for a wealthy patron to pass on an inheritance to their children. They would have this wealth, this vast wealth, and no one to share it with. So think of even uh, Abraham and uh, all the blessings that he inherits. And he says, I have no child. I have no heir. I have no one to pass on uh, this to. And so that's what happens in the doctrine of, uh, of adoption. God has this glory, and he desires to share that glory with his uh, heirs. And we see that in, first, uh, or in Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. I'll read it again. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Look at verse 11 there. In him... We have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of His will, of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will. So the doctrine of adoption implies that God provides for us. 
It implies that God listens to us. Matthew 7, 7 through 11, ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Or Jesus, when he teaches the disciples, and by extension us, to pray. He says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. By the way, it's appropriate to pray to the other members of the Trinity. You can pray to Jesus. Uh, You can pray to the Spirit. Uh, But you see this pattern and priority uh, that is to, uh, to the Father. And it's the idea of there should be this boldness that we can cry out, Abba, Father, Uh, It's the difference between asking your boss of something and asking your father for something. So when Larkin asks me, can I have a popsicle, which she loves to do, she asks me that a hundred times a day, can I have a popsicle, there's a sense in which I delight in giving that. It's weird when Tim asks me if he can have a popsicle. So God listens to us, right? God provides for us, God loves us, God listens to us. It also means that God disciplines us. The fact that we don't think of this as a privilege probably is going to uh, imply some degree of pride, some distorted view of our own uh, self-worth, a distorted view of love. Only those who don't think that they need discipline don't want discipline. Uh, The the Proverbs will talk about this. The wise treasure discipline because they know that they need it. They know how lacking, how deficient they are. And uh, and so uh, Hebrews 12 talks about this. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as son? My God, my, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We could keep going, but uh, for the sake of the time, we'll move on. So God loves us. God provides for us. God listens to us. God disciplines us. And then last, uh, an implication is that this not only changes the way that God relates to us in terms of God loves us and provides and listens and disciplines and all those kinds of things, but it also changes or affects the way that we relate to sin and uh, to others. You see this principle throughout nature where kids take after their parents, Some do that physically, some do that in terms of their personality, some do that in terms of uh, just little things that they say or the way that they say it, the accent they have, whatever it might be. A bear doesn't give birth to a goat or a kitten or whatever it might be. That's true in birth, but also true to some uh, sense in adoption. So some of you know my, do- my dad was adopted from, uh, from Japan, his, uh, lived his first two years in Japan, so his first words were Japanese. But he doesn't speak any Japanese today. Why? Because he was raised in an English-speaking family. So he, as a result of being adopted into this English-speaking family, that thou becomes the language that he speaks. Well, likewise, when you and I are adopted into God's family, we begin to speak and act in ways that mirror or imitate uh, him. We begin to image him and his love for others, and his hatred of sin. And so we see that in a couple of, uh, of passages. Romans 8, 12 through 17, which I won't read again because we've read it already a couple of times. 1 Timothy 5, 1 through 2, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, young, younger men as brothers, older men as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. In other words, there is this, uh, by virtue of the fact that we've been adopted into God's family, there is now this familial relationship in the way that we are to uh, relate uh, to each other. 
And, uh, and so no longer is the biological family uh, the, the, the focus of, uh, of our lives, but there is this spiritual family uh, that is going to take precedent. Philippians 2, 14 through 15, Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights. Uh, in the world. So as a result of being a child of God, you are to, uh, to relate to sin in such a way as to be blameless and innocent. Ephesians 5, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. 1 Peter 1, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In Matthew 5, 44 through 45, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. So you have this, uh, this idea that because we are adopted, uh, it not only changes the way that God relates to us, but the way that we relate to sin, the way that we relate uh, to others, the way that we relate to the world. And, uh, and so you see this is a very holistic doctrine. This is not mere academic fodder for ivory tower theologians or something. This has profound applications for the way that we uh, live our lives. By the way, another implication, just a closing implication of this, is that uh, all of these uh, things that we've been looking at is going to imply that adoption is this image uh, of the gospel, which means that family adoption, the opportunity that you and I have and, uh, to adopt others uh, into our own families, is an opportunity for us to kind of image the gospel, uh, to bear witness to the realities of the gospel. So I would highly encourage and recommend everyone in this room to consider whether you have an opportunity uh, to bear witness to the glory of the gospel through uh, adoption. I saw a graphic the other day uh, online, and it, uh, it showed uh, a map of at least the, uh, the 48 contiguous uh, states, and, uh, and it showed the top number is the number of kids who are waiting for adoption or in need of adoption in each state. And the number below that was the number of churches in that state. And in almost every single state, the number of churches was about two to three times higher than the number of kids, which means if one out of every two churches, not people, just one out of every two or three churches would adopt, there would be no kids in need of adoption. There was one state that was the outlier. You want to guess what it was? Nevada. It was actually Nevada. But when you add in the casinos, the casinos and the churches together, so one out of every three casinos could adopt or something like that, uh, you'd be fast. So uh, if that is you, and maybe you've never considered this before, and, uh, and maybe you're willing just to pray about it, uh, that would be great. Maybe you have thought about it before, you'd like some more information. There are a number of families, even in, uh, in this very room right now, uh, that have adopted. I could give you a whole lot of names, but for simplicity's sake, let me just give you uh, two in particular. And, uh, and so the Hoffmans, DJ and Courtney, will you raise your hands? So if you don't know them, uh, they uh, love to talk about adoption. The Catlins also, Wade and Steph, Wade's one of our, uh, our elders here. And so those are just two names. Again, there are others in this room who have adopted. I'm not trying to, uh, to demean you or anything like that, but just to give kind of two frames of reference, uh, they would love to chat with you. I want to end by uh, just reading this J.I. Packer quote again because I think it's so strong and profound and powerful for us as we think through uh, this reality of the fatherhood of God and our adoption into His family. 
This is again from Knowing God. You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as, the revel- as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator in the same way you sum up the whole of New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. And then listen to this. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. 